good seeing you this morning. If we haven't met, nice to meet you. Uh, my name is Denny Henderson. I'm the executive pastor here at Woods Edge, uh, executive pastor of ministry. And um, good to be with you again. Uh, and um, I know it's summertime, so there's lots of vacations going on around there, uh, around here. And so, but do your best to, to, to tune in for the next five weeks. I think it's going to be really, really important. And, um, and it is summer. And the thing about summer, like the first week is great. The kids are home, you're having a blast, you get the slip and slides out, you're out in the pool. It's all fun. Come July, it's like, are they ever going to leave? You know, they're still here. Uh, they, we can't drop them back off at school. And so parents, hang in there in about, a, you know, forever in a day, uh, your kids will go back to school and uh, everything will, will come back to normal. But it is vacation time and, and summer, and so it, it's a great time. How many of you, let me ask you a question. I'm thinking of some of my best uh, vacation experiences. How many of you have ever been to Paladura Canyon? Uh, raise the hands. Go ahead. All right. Paladura Canyon. Okay. Most of you must not be true Texans then. All right. A true Texan has been to Paladura Canyon. Paladura Canyon, up in the Panhandle, far west Texas, way up there, up by Amarillo, where you think it's flat, flat, flat. Well, in the middle of the flatness is the second uh, largest canyon in the country. And uh, it's beautiful. It's such a blast. We went there not too long ago on a family vacation. Uh, we, we loaded up our little uh, trailer, and we, we went out there, and we hiked. We love being outdoors. It's a blast. But how many of you have been to Paladura Canyon? Canyon, but you stayed long enough to go to the show Texas. All right? Our, our hands are dwindling. Okay, your homework assignment, people. Go to vacation in Paladura Canyon, and you have to go see this show Texas. So it's out in the middle of the canyon. It's all outdoors. It's an outdoor amphitheater, and they do this story of the story of Texas. It's the greatest production I've ever seen. I told my wife, I said, you know, I've seen Les Miserables. I've seen, you know, I've seen all these like fancy things. That was awesome. Like they have fireworks and they have fire and they have like rain that comes down. They have real horses. And I know maybe it's just because it's about Texas, but you leave the Paladura Canyon after seeing the Texas show, you leave with this feeling of pride. I am a Texan. Okay. Now we, not that we need to be reinforced of that here in Texas, but it is always good to know that when you leave, you're like, I'm a Texan. Like, that's right. I, it brings identity. If you're not from Texas, you don't understand this. We know. You don't. But it's okay. Us Texans, we, we get this. We are Texans, all right? We are from the country of Texas that happens to be a part of America, which we dearly love too, July 4th. Yes, but we are Texas. And it's a strong identity of who we are. And you go watch that show, and it just reinforces. And you're like, yes. I've got to do this. And uh, it was a great vacation. And anything with, uh, with the Hendersons, anytime we get through a vacation without a major problem is a win. I don't know about you guys, but, uh, but, but you, but our vacations uh, with the Henderson family, we have had horrible vacations. We have killed dogs on accidents. We've had hooks in heads. We've gone to emergency rooms. I mean, everything you can possibly imagine. Been stuck at sea on a rental boat in the Bahamas. We've gotten golf carts stuck in the, you know, on the beach during high tide. It's been, it's awesome. Like just, if you ever want a good adventure, just come on vacation with us. We got through this one pretty good, except for uh, my middle, my, my middle child, my, my daughter Scout. She swallowed a penny and she thought she was going to die. And Bridget thought she was going to die there for me. I said, no, no, she's just going to be like a human ATM machine in a while, but she's going to be okay, all right? And, uh, but we got through it. But I'll never forget getting in my truck, heading back, going, I'm a Texan. 
I'm a Texan. You know, here at Woods Edge, we do have an identity. We do. And here at Woods Edge, what we would say for us specifically is that we, we exist to, you know it, love Jesus, journey together, and bring hope. That's why we exist, is to love Jesus like he's never been loved before. To journey together in life, growing in Christ, having that outpour into our community to bring hope to those around us and hope around the world. That's why we exist. And we also believe that the vision of that being lived out is that Houston becomes a city of God. That Houston will become a city of God. That Houston will become a beacon of light in this country where, where lives are being changed. And we would know that Houston's becoming a city of God when we begin to see uh, things such as the divorce rate starting to plummet in the positive direction and families being renewed in the gospel. We would see orphans being taken care of. We would see poverty and all the other social issues that we have become remedied, not just because of God's people are helping and being benevolent, but because lives are being changed in the gospel. Because no government program is going to redeem a city and make it a city of God. It's only the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we would say that that is what we're passionate about here at Woods Edge. And prayer fuels that. What we do outside the walls fuels that. But to have Houston become a city of God requires that we know our identity of who we are as God's people. Not just love Jesus, journey together, bring hope to the world, but we know what Christ has called us into, that we understand the mission of God. You know, when you look at the, at the New Testament, we see that Jesus came and he did his earthly ministry and, and he brought the good news. And, and after his death and his su su subsequent resurrection, we see that right before his ascension, he gives his disciples the commission. You can see this in Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission, or you can see it in Acts chapter 1, where Jesus is gathered around his disciples, and what he says to them, he says to them, now listen, you will be my witnesses in Acts chapter 1. You will be my witnesses. And you will be my witnesses through Judea and through Samaria, through, through all the ends of the earth. You will go forth and you will be my witnesses. In Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission, Jesus said, Lo, uh, he says, all authority has been given to me. Now that's good news for us as Christ followers, that all authority has been given to Jesus. And so therefore, with that authority and that power, he says, Go ye therefore and make disciples. Make disciples. That was the call. To go ye therefore and make disciples. And so this was the great commission. This was the mission of God. And what we see is that the New Testament church took these um, mandates or this commission from God, the, the walking orders uh, from Jesus, and what they did is they began to apply it in their life. And, and we get a description of the early church. And in Acts chapter 2, uh, a passage that we're all very familiar with, but in Acts chapter 2, we get kind of a description of this is what the early church, this is what the early Christ followers looked like. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers. And all came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed, by the way, you see what it says? All in wonder came among people. What's interesting is this is the norm. This is the norm. 
when God is moving, this is the norm. Not like, well, God may or may not do something. No, they, the, the early church lived with a, a spirit of anticipation that God's always going to show up. That the power of God in the lives of people, it's going to show up. They anticipated a, a, an expectation, a spirit of expectation that alls and wonder would take place. This was the norm. When we don't see that, that's abnormal. But it says that this was the norm. And this says they were selling their possessions and belongings, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number daily, day by day, those who were being saved. So daily, people's lives are being transformed with the gospel. His people were living on mission, living in community, yeah, Growing in their faith, sure. Living in the apostles' teaching, of course. But they were on mission. When you go back to the origins of the early church in the New Testament, the, the organizing principle was all based upon mission. It was all mission. Not missions. Mission. The organizing principle of the early church was mission. You know, it's that God's people are on mission with God's vision. Well, it's God's vision. Well, we go to 1 Peter chapter 2. Look what 1 Peter chapter 2 reminds us. But you are a chosen race, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. That you were chosen for be a people of his own possession. To declare the excellencies of Christ. The mission of the church of Jesus Christ is to alert the surrounding watching world of the beauty and the glory of the gospel. That is the mission of the church. That's it. And so the early church, they were on mission with that. They were living in the vision of God that every knee will bow and every tongue will someday confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But I've chosen a holy people, a a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation to be a people that will declare this message. We'll be ambassadors of this. The early church, their organizing principle was not, um, it, it, it was not worship, though important. It was not preaching in Bible study, though important. It it, it was not community, though important. The organizing principle of the early church was mission. It was a people of God that were on mission together. That were on mission together. So the question for us this morning is quite simply, what would it look like if we here at Wood's Edge, who are loving Jesus like he's never been loved before, who are journeying in life together, and bringing hope to the world if we were to truly engage in the mission of God, of redeeming and renewing people to bring life to people, what would that actually look like? And what would it do to me? What would it do to our church? What would it do to us collectively? I would say when we step into the mission of God, what will take place is it will fundamentally change our perspective. It will fundamentally change our perspective. Living as a church will fundamentally change our perspective in three ways. The first way is this. You might want to write them down or put it on your phone. It will change our perspective about God. 
When we begin to understand the mission of God and step into mission, it will begin to change our perspective about God. You see, let's go all the way back to the beginning. This scripture right here, what we call the Bible, we know it's active. We know it's sharper than any double-edged sword. We know that it's powerful. We know that it's for teaching. We know that it's for rebuking. We know that it's for edification. It's great. It's the word of God. So we learn from it. We grow in our faith from it. But what is the overall narrative of this book? What's the narrative? What's the story that's being told? The story that's being told, the, the overall narrative that's being told within these pages is about a loving God that's in pursuit of broken man that is spiritually dead. That is the narrative. You go all the way from the beginning of time, back in the garden, in creation, we see that God breathed his breath into Adam. He sent himself, his very breath, into the lungs of Adam and gave him life. In the garden, we see Adam and Eve living in perfect harmony with God the Father. We see them in this perfect harmony, and, and I've tried this with my kids, but, but you know, God said, Adam and Eve, you can do everything you want, but you can't do this. Like I've done that. I've used this illustration with my kids. You know, kids, you can do all of that. You just can't do this, this, and this. But everything else... And God said to them, he said, you can do anything you want. Just don't eat of this tree. And of course, what do they do? They eat of the tree. And at that moment, we have what we call the fall of man. The relationship of, from the life giver, right? The sustainer of life. God himself has been breached. It's been broken, but what we see in scripture is that even though it was broken and even though it was breached, what we see is that God still follows and pursues Adam and Eve. He's pursuing the nation, the, the nation of Israel. God was pursuing his people. If they're in Egypt, God's pursuing them in Egypt. If they're wandering around the desert for 40 years, God is pursuing them in the desert. And they were a messed up group. I mean, we get it, right? And God was still pursuing, giving grace, giving mercy, giving his steadfast love. They would go to Babylon, and guess what? God was there. God was pursuing. And what we see is that God is always propelling himself in the lives of people into a broken humanity. Why? Because he's the life giver. He's the one that breathes the breath of life. And ultimately it comes down to where he sends his son. For God, uh, for God so the world that he sent. So he sends his son, Jesus Christ. He's sending, he's propelling his son, Jesus, into the world. To redeem that which was lost and that which was broken. To become the vine, right? So that we are the branches. To come and give life again to a broken humanity. The story of God throughout the whole entire Bible is God's pursuit of man. We call this, there's a phrase for it, it's Latin, so it's worth its salt, which is the Missio Dei. It's called the Missio Dei. It's translated into the missionary God or the God who is sending himself. Who was the first missionary on the scene? The first missionary on the scene was God. He was the first missionary. Now, I don't know what your view of God is. Some of you are here today because you're here on vacation and you were staying with family members and 
the bargain that they made with you is, okay, you can come, but you got to go to church with me. And so, you know, you're like, all right, whatever. And so you're here. You don't want to be here. Your thoughts of God may be that God is far off. He's highly exalted and he's sitting on a throne somewhere up there in heaven. But he's so detached from the world. He really doesn't care about the affairs of man. And, and maybe that's your view of God. And by the way, I want to say that if, I do, if I'm going to have a God, I want him high. I want him exalted. I want him on a throne. But the interesting thing about God is Psalms 113. He has humbled himself to know the things of heaven and to know the things of earth. God is intricately involved in the affairs of man. He knows how big that laundry pile is at home. He knows how many dishes are in your sink. And he knows about your greatest hurts and your brokenness and your pain. He knows those things. He has humbled himself to know the things of the universe, but also to know all the way down to your darkest secrets. And even in that, he says, I love you. He's not detached. In fact, he is the God that has propelled himself into humanity through his son, Jesus Christ. And for the Trinitarian thinking, it says that God sent his son, his he and the Son sent the Holy Spirit. And what we find in the Gospel of John, when Jesus said that, uh, as my Father sends me, so also I send. I can't hear that. Oh, so the missionary God, to complete the circle, he sends his Son, he sends his Holy Spirit, and he says, but to complete the vision and to be on mission, I also send you. We will never fully understand God until we see that he is the Missio Dei, the God of mission that is sending us. And when we begin to understand that, we understand that our perspective of the church will begin to change. Our perspective of the church. The church in the New Testament we call it the ecclesia. That's the Greek word, ecclesia. Jesus referred to it as the ecclesia. The apostle Paul referred to it the ecclesia. He gave us a little more description throughout his writings. But they, they use this word, ecclesia. Now the interesting thing about this word, I hope you understand this, is that it wasn't as if Jesus invented a word. <laughs> right? I mean, when he was referring to his people, he wasn't like, you know, I'm going to make a word up. I'm going to call them the ecclesia. Like he was using a word they were using a word in the Greek language to describe his people. So what is the raw material of this word ecclesia? What is the etymology, the study of this word ecclesia? We know that it's the gathered assembly of people. That's how we refer to it. The gathered assembly of the called out ones of God. And so we kind of have this understanding of it. But the word that was already being used in the culture was taken and says, this is kind of what the church is. So what is that word? Like, like what is the beginning? What's the origins of this? What's the raw material that Jesus had in mind, that the apostle Paul had in mind when they used this word ecclesia? So let's go all the way back. During Jesus' day, um, what would typically happen is that uh, as people gathered together and they begin to live in community together, once the 
once the village got large enough, uh, they would build a little city wall around it. Now you're thinking Lord of the Rings, big giant wall. It's not quite like that. Some may have a bigger wall, but most of them were just uh, walls of bushes and, and, you know, some rocks stacked up. Anything basically just to keep, just to keep the animals in and the kids in at night. Uh, that was basically the city wall. And, um, and at the city wall, there would be a city gate. Uh, there would be a, a gate into the city. And you may be thinking a big giant gate. It really wasn't a big giant gate. It was more like uh, there's a hole in the wall, really. That's where we got that, that term, hole in the wall. Um, so there's like a hole in the wall. And, uh, and, and so that's kind of what a village would typically look like in Jesus' day in the Middle East. And what would happen is that as a man grew older, maybe he got in his mid-40s and his, his, his son was 20. 22 years old, and maybe he got into his 50s. What would typically take place is that by the time my son could breathe and walk, if I was a carpenter, he, I had him in the carpentry shop. He was doing carpentry with me. I wanted him to understand everything about carpentry because when I get in my mid-40s, I'm handing off the business to my son. That's what would happen. So whether you're a blacksmith or you're a shepherd or you're a farmer or you're a carpenter, you would hand off your, your business to your young son who you've mentored and discipled as, as they grew up. And so the question is, what does this man at 45, late 40s do? You know, he's semi-retired. Does he go join the country club? Does he go play golf? What does he do? Well, in Jesus' day, what would happen is that he would be considered a father of the village, one of the fathers of the village. And so he would find himself every day walking down to the city gate. And at the city gate, the elders of the village would meet together. And they would eat, they would drink, they would laugh, they would talk. And what would happen is that when there was a problem within the village... When there was an issue, maybe, it was a, uh, maybe there was a drought that was taking place. They didn't know how to handle it. The younger people would come and they would sit in the dust before the fathers of the village and say, fathers of mine, there's a drought. How should we deal with this? And they would say, come back later and we'll tell you how. And they would spend all day trying to figure out how are we going to deal with this. And I've been told that it was customary not to fix the problem within the first 10 minutes because you got nothing else to do all day. So it's got to be kind of drawn out. This is what would happen. You were in a dispute with a neighbor. You would go up to fathers that sat at the gate, and you'd say, fathers of mine, the Hendersons and the Mickens, they're, they're at each other. You know, they're always arguing. They're arguing about property lines. They're arguing about who owns that dog. And, and they would bring it to the fathers, the fathers, the elders of, of, uh, of the village. We even see this. Uh, we see this in the New Testament when Jesus is actually um, standing before a group of people and he's teaching. And in Luke chapter 12, we see that um, a young man comes up to Jesus and he says, Jesus, will, will, you, will you help me and my brother? We're in a fight over the inheritance. Will, will you tell him to divide the inheritance? And Jesus responds in Luke chapter 12 by saying, uh, by saying this. He says, who made me your arbitrator? Who made me your mediator or your drudge? Who made me the arbitrator over you? And then he begins to tell a story. He tells a parable. He tells a parable of a young man who has a bumper crop. He has more crops. He's been so blessed by this harvest that he, has, he doesn't know what to do with it. 
And so uh, his barns are overfilling. And he tells the story to, to this crowd. And he says, and so the man said to himself, I know what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger barns. And I will eat, drink, and be merry. Now, what's the sin of this man in this parable? Is the sin of this man building the barns? No. Is it even eat, drink, and be merry? No. The sin that everyone knew listening to Jesus in this moment as he taught, knowing the first century and knowing the culture at the time, knew what the sin was. The sin was is that the man said, I know what I will do. I know what I will do. Because what should have happened is the young man with the bumper crop should have come before the fathers of the elders and said, fathers of mine, you're not going to believe it. I got a bumper crop. I mean, it's filling up the barns. I don't know what to do. And they would all gather together and say, come back this afternoon. Come back. Young man, why don't you do this? Why don't you give some to the poor? Why don't you give some to the church? How about throwing a party? There's no reason why you should be the only one that enjoys all of it. Okay. Young man would go off. He'd come back maybe later and say, fathers of mine, I'm still, like, I, I, I still have so much so much crop, I don't know what to do. They go, to, well, did you give some to the poor? Yes, I gave some to the poor. Did, did you give some to the priest? Yes, I gave some to the priest. Did you, did, we have a, did you throw a party, a festival? Yes, you were there, do you remember? Uh, I know, was, was I there? Yeah, I did all those things. Okay, well, maybe now, go build bigger barns. Go be a blessing to others. In the first century, that meeting, that peculiar meeting at the city gates of the elders, it was called the ecclesia. The, it was the ecclesia at the city gate that gave an expressed value to the community. That was their job. Jeremiah 29, seek the welfare of your city for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Their job, these, these fathers of mine sitting at the city gates, their, their only job was to contribute to the value by bringing judgment and discernment and wisdom and mercy and grace and solutions to their village. And it was called the ecclesia. So when Jesus says, you know, my people are kind of like, uh, this, this, the ecclesia. It's the people who are seeking the welfare of their city, of their community. If something were to happen to the, peep, to, to the fathers at the city gates, uh, a stampede of sheep came running through and killed them all, what would happen? The village would mourn. They would mourn. Of the blessing of the elders is gone. Here's the question for us as a church. If Woods Edge ceased to exist for whatever reason, we closed our doors. Would our city mourn? Have we had such an impact in the community around us that we would have people grieving because the people of God aren't in our community? Let's take it one step further. In your neighborhood, you're loading up your 26-foot box truck to move out. Would people grieve that you're leaving because you were like the ecclesia of that neighborhood, giving care and wisdom? 
it would change. When we get on mission with God, it changes our perspective of what the church is. We are called to give value to our community through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not just something we fund. It's something we engage in our neighborhoods, with our neighbor, in our workplace. Would people mourn if the ecclesia was not here? This was in Paul's mind. Of course, Paul adds that we're a body. We're the bride of Christ. He puts some more descriptors to it. But the root word was going back to those elders that sat at the gate with their only job was to give expressed value to the community. That's what God's called us to be. And when we step into this, we begin to see the world differently, changes our perspective of the world. The world out there isn't yucky. We're the holy ones. They're the, ugh. Like, I, I could go with that if the divorce rate in the church wasn't just the same as the divorce rate outside the church. If the addiction rate of, the, of people in the church is just about the same as the addiction rate of people outside the church. See, we're all broken humanity. We're all a broken mess. And when we begin to see and look at the people around us, what we begin to recognize is this, though. Is it's not, oh, they're the bad ones. We're the nice and good ones. We recognize at this that every human soul was created in the image of God. Every one of them. God will go to the darkest places. He will go to the crooks and crannies of all society to reach the one lost. His heart is heavy. His heart is broken. He's sending himself into all areas of the world to redeem that which is lost and which is his. And he loves them because in them they are created in his image. And if God loves them because they're created in his image, then we love them because they're created in his image. So we are willing. We're willing to get dirty and messy. Go to that neighbor who I don't understand has a different value system to me and just be the ecclesia to seek the welfare of them and their good and bless them. Because we know that it's the message of the church, it's the beauty of the cross, it's the beauty of the gospel that's going to transform it's, we call it inside the walls, outside the walls here at Woodshed. Sometimes we, you know, well, outside the walls, we have inside the walls. and No, 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 no. The church is on mission. We're inside, we're outside, we're everywhere. That's the way it's supposed to be. That's what you see here, demonstrated by the early church. And that's what you see here, demonstrated by a loving God pursuing each person to breathe the breath of life to make dry bones alive again he's called us to be on mission woods edge we whatever the series is called we on mission that's what we is <laughs> and when we walk on mission it changes our perspective of who god is changes our perspective of what this is and it changes my perspective of my neighbor. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for today. And our response to this is to come to your table knowing that it is your grace, it is your mercy that has redeemed us. We are a chosen people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood to declare the excellencies of Christ. So even as we take communion today of the cup and the bread, we take so in remembrance of you that you were the missionary of God that pursued each one of us to draw us into relationship with you. You pursued us. Jesus pursued us. And now Jesus says, go and pursue others. May we do that. And as we take of this cup and as we respond in communion, we do so remembering your pursuit for us. We embrace it. We sit in the mercy of the cross.